Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbourfaith.com. So if our first session was looking at God and different ways to think about God in general, uh, our second one looks at the Bible and the Word of God. So Christians in general tend to have quite a complicated relationship with the Bible. On the one hand, many Christians claim that the Bible is the literal, authoritative, inerrant, infallible Word of God. On the other hand, um, the same book sits on many a Christian shelf gathering dust, right? Because we, we just don't know how to read it or even what to do with it. My son, when he was 14, talks about being an RE. Uh, he asked a question in class because they were talking about God and Moses and the plagues that God sent. And uh, he asked, why would God uh, commit murder when one of the commandments is, thy shalt not kill? Right? If God says, don't kill, why would God then kill? And the answer was, listen, you just have to have faith. Some of these things are complicated, but you just have to have faith in God and everything will be all right. And that's the end of it. And so you can understand why so many people, even from a young age, just give up. Well, you can't even question the Bible. It's too difficult. And, you know, if there's something I don't understand, all I have to do is have faith. So what's the point anyway? And so we've ended up elevating the text to such a high level that it's basically the same as God. And so no one wants to go near it or question it because debating the text now feels like you're arguing with God or doing something blasphemous, you know, or, or you don't have enough faith. And so we end up just not critiquing or struggling with the Bible at all. And the irony is that that's exactly what it's meant for. You were supposed to wrestle with it and struggle with it because in this way, the Bible is allowed to read us and reveal certain attitudes within ourselves instead of just letting us impose our own will on top of it and then stick it in a drawer somewhere and forget about it. And this is such a tragedy because it results in incredibly low levels of actual biblical literacy, even amongst Christians. Right? We just don't read it. It's too complicated. And if I don't understand something, I'm not even allowed to question it, so what's the point? You know, I really think a huge part of the problem is that we don't know how to just let the Bible simply be what it is, which is an ancient, wonderfully complex record of human interactions with God over time. Right? You see, we think we're being all deferential and reverent when we claim that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. But the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the Bible itself, as we have it now, never makes any of those claims of itself. Right? The Bible does not itself claim to be inerrant or infallible. Those are very human claims made about the Bible much later on. Even when Paul writes in 2 Timothy, about the inspired scriptures being useful for teaching and correction, he's not even talking about that which we today call the Bible. Right? Chances are he was talking about a set of texts which came from the Tanakh and from the Septuagint, which I'm going to spend a few moments talking about 
in just a minute. So we need to understand, first of all, that although we call the Bible a book, it's not a book. Okay? The Bible's not a book. Uh, it's a collection of letters, of legal texts, poems, stories, prophetic writings, and so on. It's really a small library of works rather than a book. It's an anthology. It's a collection of works spread out over hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And this library, as we have it now, has come to us over many hundreds of years through a complicated series of events, uh, translations, arguments, revisions, councils, and so on. So to understand what I'm talking about, uh, we need to go back a little bit. Well, quite a lot, actually. If we go back to around uh, 2000 BCE, most of us roughly know the main points in the story of the history of Israel. So we begin with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's all happening about 2000 BCE. You've then got about 500 years later, you've got Moses, uh, the children of Israel in slavery in Egypt, and you have Moses uh, leading them into freedom, into the promised land. After that, you've got the establishment of the monarchy and the building of the first temple around about 1100 BCE. Then after that, you've got the conquests. Right? And this is when Israel as a nation was basically decimated and destroyed, conquered by the Assyrians to the north uh, and by the Babylonians to the south. And particularly in the case of the Babylonians, much of the population was either destroyed or taken into exile, into captivity. So if you read about Daniel uh, and those stories, that all happens in and around that time of captivity. It was a hugely traumatic, um, destructive event in the history of Israel. The population was decimated and the temple was destroyed. Now, everything I've just described happened over a period of about 1500 years. Um, so from 2000 BCE up to around about 500, 400 BCE. And during that 1500 year period, there were lots of oral traditions, songs, stories, legends, and prophecies scattered throughout the kingdom. Some remained oral traditions, some were written, but there was no central collection or central library or repository of all these works. They were just scattered, and some of them were being lost because of the war and because of migration and other issues. In and around 400 BCE, all that changed. Because what happened was the Babylonians agreed to let um, some of the captured Jews to return to their homeland and go back to Jerusalem. So these former captives living in exile are allowed to return to their homeland and they are led by a man called Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a priestly leader type figure and he starts the rebuilding of the temple and the religion and the set of practices that grew up in and around that time uh, is what's called Second Temple Judaism. Now what he also did was he decided to pull together all the scattered fragments and scrolls and writings and oral traditions that he could get his hands on and pull them together into one central repository or library um, because he was worried about them being lost you know, to the sands of time. You can actually read about this in 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, the same things are reported in the records and in the memoir, memoirs of Nehemiah 
and also that he founded a library and collected the books about the kings and prophets and the writings of David and letters of kings about votive offerings. So you can actually read about this process of Nehemiah pulling together this library because he's trying to prevent these texts being lost for all time. So this library, this great repository, was roughly categorized into three groups. You first of all had Torah, which is what we call the law, so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so on. Then you had the Nevaim, which is the prophetic writings. So Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those ones. And then the third group is, in Hebrew, Ketuvim, or just general writings. So they're like Proverbs, Psalms, Ruth, Job, all that other stuff. So Torah, Nevaim, Ketuvim, or TNK. It's just the first letters. Uh, now TNK is hard to pronounce, so if you put some vowels in, vowels in there, you get Tanakh. So the Tanakh is what we call this original library of works that Nehemiah pulled together. Uh, now we don't have this original library, um, we've not found it, but we've seen it referenced in other texts. A short time after this Hebrew library was pulled together, or being pulled together, a Greek copy was also um, starting to be compiled. Now, this is because um, many of the Jews in the diaspora who were spread out through the Roman Empire uh, didn't actually speak or write Hebrew, couldn't understand it. Their language was Greek. So work was set about to create a Greek copy of all these texts. It's called the Septuagint because that's the Greek word for 70, and there were 70 or 72 scholars involved in compiling this, week, uh, this work. Now, whilst the Greek translation the Septuagint was being compiled, other writings that weren't included in the original Tanakh were being discovered and also written. Works like Maccabees, which I just read from, uh, Sirach, Tobit, etc. And these were included in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. And these books uh, are what we now call the Apocrypha, those books that weren't originally part of the TNK but were included in the Septuagint. Anyway, this Greek version of the scriptures was very popular because way more people spoke Greek than spoke Hebrew, obviously, and so there are many more copies that survived of it. It was in use at the time of Jesus, um, more than likely would have been used as his Bible and certainly used by the disciples. And other New Testament writers would quote directly from the Septuagint. So we know that they used it and considered it, and considered it to be authoritative for them. Okay, so that's the Tanakh and the Septuagint, the Hebrew and the Greek version. The Greek version has more stuff in it than the Hebrew. So anyway, after Jesus, his followers wanted his message to live on. And so they formed, as we know, into small communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire, uh, which we now call churches. They called them ecclesias. And so various letters were sent back and forth between these communities, written by various leaders, and we now call those epistles. At the same time, other followers of Jesus who had been followers of Jesus started to write pseudo-biographical accounts of the life and teachings of this Jesus. We call them Gospels. And there were also accounts written of how the community spread from Israel throughout the Roman Empire, works like Acts and so on. Now, as well as the ones you have heard of, there were other texts that were in use at the time that were very popular, like 
the Shepherd of Hermas, the Gospel of Barnabas, Gospel of Thomas, um, some writings that we're only beginning to discover fairly recently. And so for the first two or three hundred years of the early church, right, there were all these different texts and writings and letters and Gospels floating around uh, and being used to different degrees by different communities in different locations. And so around about 300 uh, CE, efforts were made to standardize this set of texts. Right? There, was, there were efforts being made to say, let's just have one agreed upon set of documents which we consider to be authoritative for the, for the church. And there were a series of councils, and we eventually ended up with what we now know as our New Testament. And it's a very complicated process, we'll not go into it, but essentially it was kind of a rubber stamping of what was already organically and generally accepted within the early church, the writings which had by then become most popular. Now remember that copying documents then was hugely expensive, labor-intensive, and prone to errors. So only the most popular books tended to be copied and, and distributed widely. In other words, some went viral and others didn't. And so eventually we agreed on which ones would be included and which ones wouldn't. So we settled on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we left out uh, Gospel of Thomas, Peter, and Bartholomew. Um, we had Acts, uh, Revelations, but we didn't have Shepherd of Hermas. And the chips fell where they fell. In the meantime, you may know that St. Jerome had been tasked with translating all of these works into Latin, right, which was um, the common language of the Western world. So St. Jerome looked at the Greek Septuagint and the copies of the Tanakh that he had access to, and he eventually produced what we call the Latin Vulgate. So you may have heard of the Gutenberg Bible, the first Bible that was printed. This was a printed version of the Latin Vulgate. A few hundred years after that, a group of Jewish scholars called Masorets wanted to standardize the original TNK, right, way back to Nehemiah, the original Tanakh, because they didn't trust the Greek. Uh, and they produced the Masoretic text. So the Masorets produced the Masoretic text, which is still what Orthodox Judaism uses today as its Bible. For the Masorets, the language was really important. So in Hebrew, it's not just the words that are used, it's the pronunciation, it's the breaths you take along the way, it's the pauses, it's the inflection, all of that was considered sacred. Um, and so for them, all of that had been lost in the Greek and they wanted to get back to what they saw as the pure form of the text way back, the, the group of texts that Nehemiah pulled together. So in doing so, they inevitably ruled out all the apocryphal texts. Apocryphal just means hidden, by the way. So all those apocryphal texts, Maccabees and so on, that were caught up with the Septuagint were then again left out with the Masoretic text. All right, so you with me so far? This uh, takes us to about 700 CE. Now, when it comes to the English version of the Bible that we know today, uh, the Protestant Reformation English translators used the Masoretic text for the Old Testament as opposed to the Septuagint. So that's why our English Old Testaments tend not to have the Apocrypha in them. But translations from the Greek 
used in the Orthodox Church in North Africa, places like that, they do include them because for them the Septuagint was considered authoritative. So anyway, this is just a very rough, very simplistic history of how the Bible was compiled and how we ended up with it today. And almost every step along the way that I've just described is disputed in various ways by different people. And so even if we end up saying that this Bible that we can hold in our hands today and that we all read from, even if we want to say that the Bible itself is inerrant or infallible or whatever, I think we have to be honest and say the process by which it came to be in its current form seems very human. Right? What criteria was used? Should the Apocrypha have been included? Was it right to choose the Masoretic text over the Septuagint? Where's the voice of women in all of this? What pressures were the councils under when they made their decisions? And this is to say nothing of all the many English versions that have been made since. And so this is not to play down the Bible or to criticize it or devalue it in any way. Um, it's just to be honest about how we came to have what we now call the Bible. If we're going to make any claims about the Bible, we at least need to know how we got it, I think. Okay, anyway, so that's, that's just how we ended up with what we now call the Bible. Uh, and now we need to take a moment to consider what's actually in it. So the Bible, as we mentioned before, is essentially a library of works. There is some history in it. There's poetry. There are biographies. Uh, there's apocalyptic writings letters between churches, and some of it's just really basic, boring stuff like don't forget to bring my cloak and say hello to this person and so on. And overall, this collection of writings uh, is a wonderful insight into man's relationship, right? Humanity's relationship with God over time. So you, we may want to say that God is ever unchanging, okay? And the Lord may well be unchanging. But the Bible as we have it shows that our understanding of God certainly has changed over time. And that's its brilliance. However we came to receive the Bible as we have it, we have to acknowledge that as a whole, it does not present a single unified vision of what God is like. So as we read the Bible, sometimes God will seem pretty angry um, and petty, and other times God comes across as kind, benevolent, and loving. So many people get to the bits um, that just make them want to throw the Bible out, right, and just forget about it altogether, and just dismiss it as irrelevant. So, for example, you have passages uh, that talk about the conquest of the Canaanites, for example, and that is just total genocide where um, whole tribes are wiped out, women, children, animals, everyone killed, just because another tribe wants to move in on their territory. And you've got passages like Psalm 137, which says, Blessed are they who dash the heads of their enemies' children against the rocks. Right? Horrible stuff. You've got passages that speak of uh, a God who demands blood sacrifices to appease his wrath. Right? A God who promotes vengeance against enemies. A God who lived in a temple in the ancient Near East. And so you, you have all these, those images of God where God seems angry and petty and, 
And many people just throw the Bible out because of that. But equally, in the same volume of works, you have a God who's described as a God who does not live in a temple made with human hands, and a God who uh, requires mercy, not sacrifice. And we're told, do not return eye for eye, but love and even bless your enemies and welcome the stranger. And so you have texts that present God uh, in the opposite light. On the one hand, you've got the warrior King David talking in the Psalms about a God who readies his people for war, right? But then you also have a prophet, Amos, in the same Bible, who says, no, God's people shall not prepare for war. And actually, they should turn their weapons into agricultural equipment, right? They should beat their, their spears into plowshares, it says. Other examples would be like the prophet Nahum, who thought that God, and I'm quoting now, is a jealous and avenging God who takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. So Nahum says. But the prophet Jonah thought the opposite. He writes, uh, or he says, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. So the complete opposite view of God. Now, they can't both be right, but both those images of God are in there. So if you want a tribal warrior God who punishes your enemies and approves of slavery or whatever, you'll find that God in the Bible. If you want a loving, divine presence who would rather die for an enemy than kill one, you'll find that God too. And so the real question is, for those who are seeking an authentic Christian faith, the real question is, do you want to be biblical or do you want to be Christian? So the term being biblical is quite a slippery one and it can lead to all sorts of problems. And I would argue that for those seeking an authentic Christian faith, we should focus on being Christian over and above being biblical. And I'll explain what I mean. So, for example, when the disciples uh, want to smite a Samaritan village, okay, because there's this village that won't accept them, and the disciples say to Jesus, look, sh shall we call down fire and brimstone and have God wipe them from the face of the earth, right? Jesus rebukes them and says, no, you do not know what spirit you are of. Okay, he's saying to them, you may be basing your thoughts about God on a certain part of the Bible, and they were. But you're working from the wrong image of God. They were only being biblical. I mean, God did smite his enemies before, didn't he? Isn't that what the Bible says? Jesus says, no. You don't realize you're working from the wrong image. Now remember, uh, the Bible itself places Jesus above all other voices in the Bible. Right? It's the Bible that has Jesus saying the words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It doesn't have Jesus saying, I'm going to leave you a book of writings and all authority will rest in the book. No, he says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me in Jesus. And Jesus actually, you can read about this in John 5, he actually points out the irony and the danger of putting the whole of scripture on the same level as his own teachings. 
He says in John 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So life, according to Jesus, is found not in the scriptures, but in Christ. And it's the Bible that tells us that. And this is the difference between what the Bible calls the Word of God and the Bible itself. You see, while many Christians call the Bible the Word of God and imply that the Word of God and the Bible are the same thing, the Bible calls Jesus the Word of God in whom life is to be found, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and in him was life. That's talking about Jesus. Now, even before that, right, God's Word has been around long before the Bible came into its current form. And again, it's the Bible that tells us that. Romans 1, um, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So even when there was no Bible, to learn about God from, the Bible tells us that we have been able to uh, see God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, God's divine nature, has been accessible to us. So the word of God has always been there long before there ever was anything that we call a Bible. So if we say uh, that the Bible itself is the same thing as the Word of God, then we are making a claim that the Bible never makes of itself. And we are potentially reducing the Word of God into a small fixed form, stuck in space and time with gilded edges and held aloft in our churches on high platforms. In other words, we've all too easily made something that sounds suspiciously like an idol, a graven image. And that's the danger of using this phrase, well, I'm just being biblical, to defend practices and attitudes that are really coming from a fixed view of God in a certain place, time, and culture, which were never intended for you or for me to go and do likewise today. So when we read um, that the ancient Israelites wrote that God told them to wipe out the Canaanites, that doesn't mean that God actually did tell them to do that. Okay? It only tells us that the tribal warrior culture of the time believed that a tribal warrior God must have been on their side against God's enemies. But that very notion is challenged in the same Bible by prophets like Jonah who say, well, what if God is really on everyone's side? even our enemies, and maybe God doesn't want to destroy our enemies at all. And then Jesus takes that idea further and says, actually, you should love your enemies and do good to them. And we end up with a God who would rather die for an enemy than kill one. Now that's very different from a God who tells us to kill the Canaanites, right? See, not everything in the Bible is there for you to go and do likewise. So you can find examples of uh, vengeance, 
polygamy, subjugation of women, you can find racism, uh, slave ownership, all that can be found in the Bible, and therefore you could technically describe all of that as biblical, right? And you, you can defend it on that basis, or try to anyway. But none of those things can be described as authentically Christian, okay? Even today, you'll hear Christians saying things like coronavirus was sent from God because whatever, fill in the blank here. You know, society has done this wrong or um, offended God in some way, so obviously this is God's punishment. And hey, isn't that idea biblical because didn't God send plagues on Egypt? Right? I'm just being biblical. No. What we're reading there was a still maturing view of God that is then challenged by other scriptures and ultimately completely thrown out by Jesus. So, for the Christian, we can't just take a flat reading of the Bible and apply whatever bits we want from any time and culture and just apply it today because it suits our purpose. So much evil has been justified in the name of being biblical. Right, right from the Crusades uh, to the slave trade, inquisitions, the oppression of women, uh, right the way through to patriarchal and homophobic attitudes we see today. The Bible says it, I believe it. Except that Jesus says no. He says, yes, I know you have heard it said, I know you have read an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because the Old Testament does say that. Jesus, however, says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Actually turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, give them another cloak. Now, even in its time, the original um, writing about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was actually progressive in its day. Because what it was trying to do was prevent violence from escalating. So if you took my eye, instead of me killing you and your whole family, Right? The Old Testament scriptures say, no, let's just keep it as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you know, let the punishment fit the crime. That's what they were trying to do then. So even in its time, that was quite progressive from what was being practiced in other cultures. But Jesus takes it that step further and says, even that's not good enough. It's not just about uh, making the punishment fit the crime. It's about grace and forgiveness and mercy and outrageous kindness, and now you have the Christian view as opposed to just the quote-unquote biblical one, because now we're using Jesus as the filter, okay? So you may wonder then, why would God let us have a volume, right, a Bible, uh, that doesn't always portray God accurately, or one that portrays God in immature ways? Why are those violent images there? And I like um, Pete Enns' like uh, approach to this. Uh, he says it's because God lets his children tell his story, even if we tell it poorly at times. Because that is our honest and authentic journey of how we came to where we are now. And so, just like the process uh, through which the Bible came into being, so that whole process I outlined with the Tanakh and the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, that whole messy, organic process that gave us the Bible, so just like that process, so the actual content of the Bible 
also leaves us with questions and complications and puzzles to solve. And therein lies the value of the Bible, the real value. Because those very questions and puzzles, as we wrestle with them and try and solve them and understand the culture um, and the practices at the time, as we do all that work, that is what produces maturity and growth in us. As we follow that trajectory from immature, tribal, violent views of God, right the way through to views that challenge that, all the way through to Jesus saying, actually, this is how God really is. As we follow that trajectory from immature to mature, we discover the Word of God that's been there all along. Right? And we discover the Word of God uniquely through the practice of wrestling with the Bible. And maybe that's why, you know, God lets us have a book of problems instead of the answer book we all seem to want. Right? Because there's no real value in just a book of answers anyway. It's like a maths textbook. If all we had were the answers at the back, we wouldn't learn anything. The real value is in the problems that we are uh, to wrestle with and solve along the way. And as we train ourselves to use Jesus as the filter through which to view the rest of the Bible, so we put Jesus over and above all other voices in the Bible, including New Testament voices, and as we put Jesus up there and then read the rest of it through Jesus, we can discover an authentic Christian faith that isn't afraid of the Bible anymore. And actually a faith that can be even begin to make sense of it. So we can then read Nahum without fear and we can read his tribal uh, violent views of God and we can understand why he would perceive God that way. In his space and time. But ultimately, we know that Jonah has the more mature view because that's the one Jesus affirms. So when we take the Christian view, we can begin to make sense of it. Yes, we see texts that claim God is into blood sacrifice. And there are others like Hosea that say, no, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And we see that Hosea has the more mature view of God because that's the one Jesus affirms as Jesus actually quotes Hosea. So if we can avoid those two dangers, on the one hand, the danger of elevating the Bible to such a height that it's up there, equal with God, infallible, inerrant, so much that it's almost like an idol, right? And on the other hand, just ignoring it altogether because it you know, is dull or it has contradictions too complicated. If we can avoid those two dangers, we can end up with a set of scriptures that really are, as Paul says, useful for correction and for teaching and for building our faith. And so let's not be afraid of the Bible. Let's welcome uh, the questions and the struggles. After all, as we keep saying, the very word Israel means to wrestle with God. And so the Bible is like our sparring partner. It shows us a mirror of ourselves. Because we know that at times we can be immature and vengeful and tribal. And it's so tempting to want to pluck those versions of God from the text and then use them to be biblical, quote-unquote, when really all we're doing is justifying how we're feeling at that time or our own prejudices, which is exactly what was happening in many of the stories of the Old Testament. Okay, 
So let's not be afraid of the Bible, but let's certainly not abuse it by weaponizing it or using it to justify our own prejudices, all in the name of being supposedly biblical. And so I'm not saying any of this to try and demote or belittle the Bible in any way. Um, I just think that if we try and make the Bible into something it was never intended to be, uh, we inadvertently end up with more people not reading it, more people being scared of it, and more people abusing it. And I think that puts us a million miles away from the Word of God, whatever we mean by that phrase. I would love to see more people reading the Bible, engaging with it, loving it, turning it inside out, looking at it from all angles, wrestling with it, and through that process, growing in their faith. Ultimately, the Bible should be something um, that brings out the best in us, that shows us the trajectory of a loving, kind God as read through the lens of Jesus. Let's allow the Bible to be what it is, an ancient, wonderfully complex record of human interaction with God over time, sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong. And by wrestling through it all along the way, we do discover the Word of God that's been there all along. <music>